0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. at Cross and Crown we believe that the Bible is God's word to his people and that means when we read it we are hearing God speak to us. Our passage this morning is from Genesis chapter 25 from verses 12 to 34. I'll be reading from the CSB version. I'd encourage you all to follow along in your own Bibles and the passage will also be displayed on the screen. These are the family records of Abraham's son Ishmael whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. These are the names of Ishmael's sons. Their names, according to the family records, are Nebaoth, Ishmael's firstborn, then Kedah, Adbeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadad, Temah, Jeter, Naphish, and Kedema. These are Ishmael's sons, and these are their names by their settlements and encampments. 12 leaders of their clans. This is the length of Ishmael's life, 137 years. He took his last breath and died and was gathered to his people. And they settled from Havilah to Shur, which is opposite Egypt as you go toward Ashur. He stayed near all his relatives. These are the family records of Isaac, son of Abraham. Abraham fathered Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took as his wife Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel the Aramean from Padan Aram, and sister of Laban the Aramean. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife, because she was childless. The Lord was receptive to his prayer, and his wife Rebekah conceived. But the children inside her struggled with each other, and she said, Why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. When her time came to give birth, there were indeed twins in her womb. The first one came out red-looking, covered with hair like a fur coat, and they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out grasping Esau's heel with his hand. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when they were born. When the boys grew up, Esau became an expert hunter, an outdoorsman. But Jacob was a quiet man who stayed at home. Isaac loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Once, when Jacob was cooking a stew, Esau came in from the field, exhausted. He said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stuff, because I'm exhausted. That is why he was also named Edom. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, said Esau, I'm about to die, so what good is a birthright to me? Jacob said, Swear to me first. So he swore to Jacob and sold his birthright to him. Then Jacob gave bread and lentil stew to Esau. He ate, drank, got up, and went away. So Esau despised his birthright.
1: I wonder how good you are at waiting. It's really hard to wait, isn't it? Especially now with all the instant gratification, we can get most things either the same day or next day, thanks to Amazon and Uber. I find it even hard waiting the five seconds to skip a YouTube ad, but I'm always too cheap to go premium. But being able to wait is actually quite important for us, to be able to grasp the greater things in life, isn't it? You may have heard of this, there's this famous study done in the 1970s by Stanford University called the Marshmallow Experiment. In the study, they would get a child in a room and offer them a choice. They can either eat one marshmallow immediately, or they can wait 15 minutes while the researcher goes out, and if they don't eat that one marshmallow, the researcher would give them a second. They did this with about 50 children, And they found out that, over time, those who were able to delay gratification had better life outcomes. Now, I always found that study interesting, because I think on one level, it actually parallels the Christian life. You see, the children who waited were willing to wait because they relied on a promise. The promise that the researcher would come back in 15 minutes and give them a second marshmallow. And in one sense, we are waiting too. Only the stakes are much higher. See, we believe Jesus Christ died for our sins, raised from the dead, and his promise is that one day he will return to renew everything, and we will forever be with him. And he also promises us eternal life. Even if we die, we will forever be with him. And he's encouraged us to live our lives according to this promise. And in doing so, we often deny ourselves a lot of pleasures, a lot of opportunities and ambitions and security that the world may offer. But the question we often have in this life is, is it worth it? Is being a Christian worth it? Well, we'll explore that question today. We're resuming our series in Genesis, and what we see throughout Genesis is a God who promises. He creates the universe good, he creates humanity in his image, but then humans fall into sin and hurl themselves and all creation into darkness. Yet into this context, God promises he will restore everything. And he makes this promise to one man, Abraham. He promises him that all the peoples on earth will be blessed through him. But then, Abraham dies before God's promise is fulfilled. Here's where we are now in Genesis. We are now tracing the story of his children, the children of the promise. And through his children, we will see God's faithfulness to his promises and how we should wait for his promises. Uh, for this passage in particular, we'll con- consider one call a call to not forfeit the promise of God for momentary satisfaction. The sermon today will cover three points. First, a promise fulfilled. The second, a prayer answered. The third, a hunger satisfied. And of course, one of these points is not like the other. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you that you are a God of promise, and because of your promise, we have hope. We have hope in the restoration of this world, the restoration of our lives. And help us, Lord, hold on to your promise, even when things seem dire and difficult, knowing, O Lord, that the hope that we have is in Christ, resurrected. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.
0: So we
1: begin with the family records of Ishmael. And here's the recap of the story between Ishmael and Isaac. You see, God made a promise to Abraham that he would make him a great nation. His descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Now, the problem with that was that Sarah was barren. So they took things. So Abraham and Sarah took things into their own hands, and Sarah told Abraham to have a child with her slave, Hagar, instead. So Abraham did, and Ishmael was born. Look at his pedigree in verse 12. Ishmael, whom Hagar the Egyptian, Sarah's slave, bore to Abraham. Now that's not a flattering pedigree, is it? Son of a slave. Why does the author even mention this? This isn't even the line where God's promise is going to go through. Well, on one level, it's to show that Ishmael wasn't the legitimate heir to the covenant promise God made to Abraham. You see, God told Abraham he will bear a son from his legitimate wife. It's not going to be some legal fiction that he's trying to create by having a son through his wife's slave. And God fulfilled that promise. Isaac was born when Sarah was 90 years old. And through Isaac, God's promise of salvation would continue. But of course, that puts Ishmael in an unfortunate situation, doesn't it? You see, he is a rejected son. He was born because his dad and Sarah didn't trust God. His mother is a slave and a foreigner. As for God, given the circumstances of his conception, he was not a child of his promise. And I wonder, friends, if for some of you, Ishmael's story reminds you of yours. Conceived and born into chaos. Born unwanted and into pain. And you don't know if anything good can come out of something so broken and dark. Well, if that's you, then Ishmael's story should actually be an encouragement. You see, because into this chaos that Abraham and Sarah created, God in His grace gives another promise over Hagar and Ishmael. As Hagar was pregnant in the wilderness, terrified of giving birth and becoming a single mom in the wilderness of ancient Near East, an angel of the Lord comes to her and encourages her to return and promises her that God will also multiply her offspring. She will live, Ishmael will live, and their line will continue. The family record of Ishmael today points to the fulfillment of that promise. Look at verse 16. Genesis summarizes Ishmael's sons as being 12 leaders of their clans. And this is exactly what God promised to Abraham about Ishmael. In Genesis 17, he tells Abraham he will bless Ishmael and that he will father 12 tribal leaders and become a great nation. Promise fulfilled. Now, why is this important? Well, it's important because it shows God's grace to the rejected, the ones born into chaos, to the slaves, to the foreigners. God would send his angel look at their affliction, and give hope through his promise. Do you know what the name Ishmael means? It means the Lord hears. And when the Lord promised her these things, Hagar named the Lord El Roy, which means the God who sees me. You see, both Hagar and Ishmael know, even if the world rejects them, the Lord sees and hears them. He fulfills his promise to bless them, even if it's not through them that God's salvation would come. And yet on another level, the fulfillment of this promise is important so we can continue to hope in the greater promise. The promise that through Abraham's seed, all nations will be blessed. A blessing that will happen through Isaac's line. Why do we need that hope? Well, we need that hope because through the rest of Genesis, we'll see the children of the promise, well, they're not so promising. Let's continue, verses 19 to 21. We now enter the family records of Isaac, the one through whom the promise will be fulfilled. Now, I don't know about you, but when I think of the chosen one or the chosen family, uh, you'd think they'd be either like the Incredibles or like the Rothschilds, right? They'd be like super powerful family, super wealthy or super righteous at least. Life should be pretty smooth for them because God is with them. And through them, he will save the world. But that's not the case at all. They still endured trials. Look at verse 21. Rebecca was childless. Now Isaac's family story starts out promising in that in response to Rebecca's childlessness, Isaac prayed. In this he did better than his father. He waited and trusted on God's promise rather than take things into his own hand like Abraham did. Now verse 21 may lead you to believe that Isaac just prayed a couple of times and boom, the Lord answered him. But look at verse 20 and 26. He married Rebekah when he was 40 years old, and he became a father when he was 60. Isaac didn't pray for a couple of nights, he prayed for a couple of decades 20 years of barrenness. But Isaac remembered God's promise, God's promise to his father, and he believed. And God answered his prayer in his affliction. And Rebecca is also faithful here. When she was struggling with her pregnancy, she inquired of the Lord. Like Isaac, she went to the Lord in her affliction. Unless we gloss over her affliction, let's remember she was pregnant with twins. Now, I'm a man, so I can't imagine what that would be like. But I imagine it's like the discomfort and difficulty of being pregnant with one baby, except it's two. So it's probably really, really difficult. Both Isaac and Rebekah turned to the Lord in their affliction. So far, so good. But hear the, Lord the Lord's answer to Rebecca's inquiry. Look at verse 23. Two nations are in your womb. Two peoples will come from you and be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the younger. Now what does this all mean? Well, the Lord here is foretelling what would happen between Jacob, Esau, and their descendants. Conflict and reversal. There will be conflict between siblings, nations, and people, and there will be a reversal. The older will serve the younger. And this was a really strange thing back then, because historically the eldest son inherited their parents' lands and belongings. So why does God declare this? Why does God declare conflict and reversal? Well, God's promise, it's because God's promise brings out both human sin and divine mercy. The conflict shows the outworking of sin, and we'll see this in both children later. But the reversal shows the outworking of divine mercy. You see, God's promise often works through the weak and the least, which back in those days was exemplified by the younger sibling. So this is done so it's obvious that it's God's power and not human strength that brings about his salvation. Let's continue to see how this oracle plays out in verses 24 to 26. We see here a defining birth. Now have you ever struggled thinking about a name for your children or your pet dog? or cat, when Grace and I were thinking about what to name our son, I realized how many people in secondary school I didn't really like. It's like, oh, let's not name him that. He reminds me of that guy that I had beef with. Oh, people with that name are so annoying. (laughs) And we often think hard about what to name our children or pets because we're trying to define them by their name. And that's what happens with the twins. The first one was red and covered with hair, so they named him Esau, which literally means hairy. Uh, That's a straightforward definition. The second one came out grasping at Esau's heel, so they called him Jacob. Now, Jacob in Hebrew is a play on the word heel. Uh, Positively, it means someone who follows closely on the heel, which is a Hebrew phrase meaning that he protects, he's a protector. This is probably the meaning that his parents went for. But negatively, to raise your heel against someone, as the psalmist says, is actually a Hebrew metaphor for deception and betrayal. So Jacob's name has a double meaning. And throughout this series, we'll see how true to his name he is. But I want us to pick up on that first act of birth for Jacob. Grasping at his brother's heel. That grasping will mark Jacob. Throughout his entire life, for better or for worse. And we'll see how it works out initially in his youth. Uh, look at verses 37 to, uh, 27 to 34. You see, the boys grow up, and despite being twins with the same parents and same environment, they became very different men. Esau was an expert hunter, an outdoorsman, and Jacob was a quiet domestic homebody, a difference in temperament, interests, and skills. But not only that, it seems these differences became a factor to preferential treatment between parents. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Now, both parents probably loved both their children, but from here it suggests that there's, they favored one over the other. Now, favoritism is a poison to any family. It's hurtful to the unfavored child for the lack of love, but also to the favored child for the crushing gaze that is often set upon them. But notice the source of favoritism here for Isaac. He loved Esau because he had a taste for wild game. Really? That's The reason why you favor Esau? Because of what he can give you. Not because of who he is, but because he's a hunter that can bring his father wild game. Now, tragically, some of us may have similar experiences with our families. Favored for what we can do or give rather than who we are. But we're also guilty of this ourselves, aren't we? I mean, even if we don't have children or aren't married, in our friendships and broader relationships, we often favor people who we can get something from, don't we? We use them to get what we want, to satisfy our own appetite of wild game. And when it comes to using people, well, let's say that's the one thing Jacob and Esau actually have in common. Look at verses 29 to 34. After a day, in their natural elements, Jacob and Esau meet. Esau, completely famished, asks Jacob for stew. And Jacob, seizing the opportunity, asks Esau for his birthright. They strike a deal, and an exchange is made. And in this, we see the two games Esau and Jacob are playing. You see, Esau is like his father, Isaac, a man of appetite. If he was in the marshmallow experiment, he would have eaten his marshmallow immediately. Only it's much worse than that. Because first of all, instead of a marshmallow, it's lentil stew. I mean, come on, a marshmallow would have been better than that, right? And second of all, what he forfeited wasn't a second marshmallow. It was his birthright. Now, to give you a picture of what that meant in Deuteronomy, the firstborn gets a double share of inheritance and probably stays on the land of their parents. So that's like, essentially, forfeiting the inheritance of your parents' Melbourne house for a free dinner at Lentils as anything. Like, why would you do that? Why would Esau do that? Well, Esau did that because that's the game he's playing. Happiness now. Satisfaction now. Look at what he says in verse 32. I'm about to die. So what good is a birthright to me? I will perish tomorrow. So let's satisfy my desires now. It's kind of like the message we hear today in our culture Isn't it? Enjoy your life now, because tomorrow is never promised. And it's the game we often play, too, isn't it? Give me pleasure today, because I may not have tomorrow. Ironically, of course, for Esau, among all people, tomorrow is promised to him, and promised by God. He's the son of Isaac, the grandson of Abraham. Of all people, he is promised tomorrow. And so are we. But is Jacob any better, though? You see, Jacob sees the opportunity he has to grasp from Esau what he has. As second-born, Jacob is relegated to a lesser status for the rest of his life. And given his father's favoritism, he probably feels a lot like Ishmael, rejected. Further, Esau's birthright means Jacob's future isn't secure. When his parents die, he'll have to fend for himself with the leftovers of their estate. So Jacob seeks status. He grasps at it. How can I change my fate? How can I rise above my station? Answer? By exploiting my brother. And so he does. And he gets what he wants. Both of them get what they want, actually. But neither of them did good in this whole exchange. Esau despised his birthright, which entailed the promise of God, valuing it to be as much as a bowl of lentil soup. Yet Jacob despised his brother. So much, though, that he would deprive him of soup in his exhaustion unless he gave up his birthright. You see, both were men of appetite. Esau hungered food, and Jacob hungered status. So despite being different men, playing different games, they were both slaves of the same sin. They both loved themselves more than God and loved themselves more than each other. So they used each other. Neither looked to God in their distress. James 4 verses 1 to 2 says, What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions that wage war within you? You desire and do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. That is the source of conflict. The reason why God declared over Rebecca that the two will be separated. Because of sin. But what's the alternative? To seek God like their parents did. And to not give in to their appetites when it leads them to sin. And that's the alternative for us. Hebrews 12, 16 exhorts us, and make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau, who sold his birthright in exchange for a single meal. Now, if I were to end the sermon here on this application, you might be motivated to try and white-knuckle abstaining from ungodly desires for a time. But it wouldn't get you too far, would it? You may keep yourself pure and sober for a time. But here's the truth about appetite. An appetite is there to point you to a deeper hunger. There is something driving you to satisfy yourself, no matter the consequence. And yet, and yet, none of these things of this world truly satisfies you, does it? It was C.S. Lewis who said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger because there is such a thing as food. So if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures can satisfy it, probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it. To suggest... The real thing. Now the question is, what is the real thing? Well, the real thing is what God's promise to Abraham is all about. You see, when God promised to bless the nations through Abraham, He was going to bless them in a way that fully satisfies. And the fulfillment of that promise is in Jesus Christ. You see, as the greater Isaac, Jesus was the true chosen one. He was from the line of Abraham and Isaac, the one in whom the promise of God is fulfilled. Paul says the promises spoken to Abraham refer to one seed who is Christ. And yet, and yet, to an even greater extent than Ishmael, as the chosen one, Jesus was rejected. He was rejected by people. He came to his own, and yet his own did not receive him. But more importantly, he was rejected by God. On the cross he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Why? If Jesus is the chosen one, the one in whom the Father is well pleased, then why is he also the rejected one, the one forsaken by the Father? Why is he both? He's both because as the chosen one, he was rejected so you can be accepted. He was oppressed and rejected like a slave, a foreigner, an unwanted child. So that you can be free, so that you can come home, and so that you can be born again as a favored and beloved child of God. He was rejected in our place for our sins so that we can be adopted and cherished by the Father. And as it was with Rebecca's pregnancy, there was also a declaration of conflict with Mary when Mary was pregnant with Jesus. In Luke, Simeon Simeon told Mary that this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be Opposed. See, Jesus brings about conflict by bearing the promise of God. Because some people will be like Esau, who despise God's promise as worthless, and others will be like Jacob, who treasure and grasp at it. And so, Jesus also brings about a great reversal. He says, the last will be first, and the first last. Because of Christ, even the greatest sinners can receive God's promise when they hold fast to Him. That's the reversal. The most poor, weak, lowly, and wretched sinner can receive God's promise over the wealthy, strong, and moral ones who despise it. So because... Jesus was the one who was chosen yet rejected so that you can be accepted because Jesus was the one that reverses you from sinner to saint, from condemned to forgiven. Jesus is the one who can only satisfy your hunger. Jesus says in John, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. And no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. Friends, you are hungry. You may think you're hungry for other things like someone's love, for status, for ambition. But there's a hunger underneath your hunger. And that hunger is for God, and Christ has come to grant you satiation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, I don't know your story. Maybe you're like an Ishmael, or maybe you're like an Isaac. Maybe like Ishmael, you're the black sheep, born into chaos, sin, and rejection. You feel like your life is just one giant mistake. Or maybe like Isaac, you're actually the golden child, the favored one, but you're suffocating under the pressure and weight of everyone's expectation. Whatever your background is, like all of us, you are bound to sin. There's something dark in you as there is in us all. Something that leads you to a selfishness that expresses itself either like Esau or like Jacob. Yet, what underlies your sin is likely a hunger for God that you are seeking in other things. If that's you today, I encourage you to come to Jesus. He is the only one who will satisfy. Whoever believes in him will never hunger or thirst again. Repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you are a Christian, the application today is to not despise your birthright. As children of God, born of God, we are co-heirs with Christ we will inherit what is promised to Him. Eternal life, union with God, and the renewal of everything when He returns. And we're called to hold fast to our birthright despite the temptations before us. Now, this doesn't mean we have to be ascetic monks and deny ourselves all kinds of pleasure, but we must uphold Jesus as our supreme pleasure and our soul's reward. Continuing from C.S. Lewis's earlier quote, he says, I must take care, on the one hand, never to despise or be unthankful for these earthly blessings, and on the other, never to mistake them for something else of which they are only a kind of copy or echo or mirage. I must keep alive in myself the desire for my true country, which I shall not find till after death I must never let it get snowed in snowed under or turned aside I must make it the main object of my life to press on to that other country and to help others to do the same so let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering since he who promised is faithful let's pray Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for Jesus, the bread of life, whom without which we would always grow hungry and thirsty. Help us, Lord, um, remember him in times when we are tempted to despise our birthright. And Lord, if we've always been hungry, help us find satiation today by turning to Christ.